Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today uh, for this episode is uh, Mr. Robert Fox, a former member of the United States Army, uh, field artillery and intelligence analyst. Um, he's taken an interesting turn since then. I'll let him discuss that. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. All right. Good to hear. Um, so, Robert, you've got a, an in- interesting background and uh, history uh, in the contracting uh, world. Uh, but before we get there, uh, can you briefly uh, tell folks who you are, what you did, what you are, and uh, what you all the whatever it was you did that led you up to the point where you decided you wanted to start contracting? Okay, sure. Um, well, my first job in food service was way back uh, in my high school days. Uh, I graduated high school in 75. Um, but during my last senior year, I did a lot of food service, um, kind of have a little extra spending money. Uh, after I graduated, I spent a year just traveling and doing a few things. Uh, then I went in the military in 1976. Um, I enlisted as a field artillery crewman. Uh, went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, did my basic in AIT there. Uh, then I went to uh, uh, be with the 101st Airborne Screaming Eagles. Uh, uh, did about a year there. Then I transferred over to... Uh, uh, Ray Barracks and 3rd Armored Division in uh, Freiburg, Germany. Uh, at the time, it was getting close to my re-enlistment. Um, I was kind of tired of combat arms, so I re-enlisted uh, for 96 Bravo Intel Analyst. Uh, left Germany, went to school in Fort Huachuca. After Fort Huachuca, I went to uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. And... Um, they decided uh, to send me to an infantry battalion. So my plan to get out of combat arms didn't really work. So I went into an infantry battalion uh, as the uh, Intel NCO. Uh, a bit of history there was uh, the military was experimenting with a cohort battalion. Uh, it was, uh, I believe, first of the 36th Infantry Battalion. So I uh, got out of the service in 1983 and that was my last unit and then i went on into food went back into food war okay so uh a real quick brief aside here for uh, the folks that are listening um we the last couple the the episode before this with my previous guest um i'd been thinking about for some time talking with folks been getting a lot of requests for it and then it came up uh, in the last week in the previous episode uh, with one of the guys I was talking with. Uh, you know, there's a and we've mentioned this in a lot of episodes um, that there's a lot of contractors out there of various stripes. It's not all just private security. And just like any good team, it takes a lot of people from various walks of life with different skills uh, to to make that thing work. And the guys at the 
call it what you want, the pointy end of the spear, whatever. That's a very small percentage of the entire team, typically, that it takes to support what we're doing. Robert is uh, with his background in the military and then his his change up what he did. Uh, it struck me as a very interesting uh, transition and refreshing change uh, from the uh, regular format of what we're doing. But that said, um, even though he wasn't toting a weapon overseas and doing things, he was still in the same environment um, and exposed to many of the same things. And uh, like the proverbial janitor who used to fly on the wall in the high school, this guy was in a position to see and hear an awful lot of stuff, kind of like a camera that never stops rolling. Um, And we had an interesting conversation uh, before this. Uh, Really piqued my interest. So uh, anyway, Robert, with that said, so when you decided to leave the standard civilian life um, and do contracting. Can you tell folks what year that was, who you worked for, and uh, where you first uh, were deployed? Okay. Uh, I started contracting in 2006. Uh, it was kind of interesting. I I applied for a job with uh, Halliburton, Halliburton KBR, uh, to cook offshore. Uh they responded back and asked me if I wanted to go to Iraq. And I uh, discussed it with my wife. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try a year. Everybody says I'll try a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> end up doing more. But, uh, you know, and, and if there's something that definitely is going to change your life, it's going to work in a war zone. And, um, so that was in May of 2006. Uh, I went through the processing center there at uh, in uh, Houston with KBR. And then uh, I went on and I landed in Baghdad a few weeks later. And um, I was assigned to, at that time, the uh, Iraq was divided up into different sites. And I was in the G sites, coalition sites. Uh my first site was G6, uh, Diwania. I spent about a month transferred permanently to uh, G3, Al-Kut, uh, which is right on the Tigris River, about 100 miles south of Baghdad. So, you're, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting um, because of all the non-quote-unquote um, combatant type positions, which private security ostensibly, arguably, some people would say it is, it isn't, you know, it's a defensive thing. Well, it's whatever. Other than that, the the one that I recollect that got an awful lot of press coverage were the truck drivers, the guys that were the cooks, the guys that were feeding us and breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks and, and all the other stuff. Uh, you never really heard about them. But oftentimes, especially when bases were attacked, the cooks, <laughs> while maybe not being attacked directly, were also in and around it. But, you know, you saw and heard an awful lot of really interesting things, and you only told me a few of them right. um, earlier before we, we started this. And uh, so let me ask you, for the folks that are listening, because, you know, this has been mentioned a number of times, 
that there's an awful lot of contract opportunities out there. Private security is just one small uh, fraction of, of, of the uh, contract opportunities out there. And, uh, you know, and people often ask, well, how, who do I contact? What's the process? How do I get into it? You know, what's the ipso factos? Um, from your perspective, your experience, uh, can we start there? Can, can you uh, tell folks that, you know, maybe would like to try their hand at contracting overseas or at least outside the United States? Um, can you tell them what what uh, from your perspective, your experience, what it's like and what what they should or need to do and, and how to go about it? Sure. Um you know, as you know, Scott, contracting is not for everybody, but there are some people who really fit into this. Uh, I always tell, you know, as a manager, when I get a new employee in, if you look at it as a job, you'll you'll hate it because you're there 12, 13 hours a day. You get told when you can eat, when you can sleep, where you can go. You're basically stuck on a military camp doing what the military tells you to do if you look at a job you hate it but if you look at it as a lifestyle you you start to understand it um and and that's a big thing in your mind you know uh you get paid for living a certain way and in that that 12 or 13 hours however long your shift is there's certain things you have to do were there to serve the client, the military. Uh, and if you can't do that, if that's not in you, don't even try it. But if it's in you to serve others, if you don't have an issue with that, then it's a great opportunity. It's, it's a fabulous learning experience. Um, and then the people I meet, I've known for many years, and, I, you know, they're, they're going to be my friends for life. I talk to them all the time, uh, and the things you experience you would never experience anywhere else. Uh, being in a war zone, you're you get shot at. You have to run to the bunker. Uh, you may see your friends die. You may get hurt yourself. Uh, there's a lot of things that that put stress on you. It stresses on your family being away for so long it stresses on you it's a mental stress but at the end of the day there's uh, to me the reward is knowing that man i helped that guy in uniform i made his day better by cooking in something he wanted or by going the extra mile you know his his food wasn't right i got him something different it it's things like that that, you know, uh, getting a, a coin from an officer or getting a, you know, certificate of appreciation, hey, that, those are fine. But to me, it really matters when, when you touch somebody's lives over there. You, you, you did something that, hey, they'll never forget. Uh, you know, that's, that's to me the contracting world is where you can serve somebody and, and make a difference. I don't know how to say it, but <laughs> that that's what it is. I mean, you've been there. You, you, you've met people that, that do it from their heart. And you met people that just do it for a job. Right. Well, you know, and, and what I find uh, striking is that, uh, 
you know, uh, before contracting, you were, uh, you know, a warfighter for last, yeah. lack of a better term. So you went from, uh, you know, the screaming eagles and intelligence to food service. But, you know, and, and the reason I'm saying that is that people are probably scratching their heads going, what? <laughs> 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 you know, and, and, and probably a host of other questions. Um, and uh, but, you know, it. it I will say there were a number of people of uh, uh, put that in proper context, a, a number of disciplines, a number of uh, industries, jobs, titles, whatever you want to call it, that people did that um, on the surface didn't seem very important. But um, on the flip side, especially during our downtimes or like you said, during our meal times, right? you know, uh, that made a huge difference. And. Uh, as time went on, I got better at going out of my way to thank the guys behind the counter that were serving the food because uh, you're right, man. I tell you what, uh, when it whether it's 130, 140 degree weather or it's uh, at or below freezing <laughs> and you're working long shifts every day, um, a good meal um, goes an awful long way to soothe sure an does. awful lot of ills. You know, especially when that guy or gal like you, for example, is also smiling and, uh, you know, we can tell because we're not getting the same thing every day. So, uh, you know, that that is an important. But so it, it goes to a lot of things The uh, that that there's way more opportunities out there for somebody that wants to contract. that's not doing proper security and that uh, they can have a satisfying experience. So so your first one was in Baghdad. Can you tell people um, from your experience, <laughs> what was it like when uh, from the time that you got on that plane and you went, wow, you know, it's starting to set in. This is real. And then when you got off the plane, <laughs> can you can you re- recollect what it was like and, and, and tell folks what that was like for you? Yeah, landing in in uh in Baghdad, uh, you know, of course you you had a layover in wonderful Dubai. What a contrast! <laughs> but then landing in uh, Baghdad, and this was in May of 2006, and uh, I believe you were in Iraq too. But at that time, Baghdad Airport it, it still had a lot of war scores. It didn't have electricity. It didn't have a lot of things. It was just Kind of a big, um, dusty shell, <laughs> you know. And and you get off the plane, and and all these military guys are are kind of hollering at you. Get in this line, form in this line. It was kind of like uh, it wasn't quite as bad, but it's kind of like I don't know if you remember the first time you met your drill instructor. You got <laughs> off the bus, and, hey, Robert. Some here, things you here. never forget, right? <laughs> it, it, it is kind of chaotic because you were carrying your body armor, you're carrying your helmet, your PPE. At that time, you had to carry all that and your own, you know, two suitcases or whatever you're carrying. So you had probably 100 pounds of stuff you were toting. Mm. And uh, and I remember we finally picked a place, you know, some people from the company came wait here. And uh and uh, Baghdad Airport was divided up into different, like, uh, rooms or terminals. And 
And the one we had, I'll, I'll never forget. I was uh, sitting on my bag and I was looking up and it had one of those old, uh, oh, what do they call it, screens with, with that show the flights when they're coming in. And this was a real old one that had like the old flip, you know, a five would flip and a four would flip. Mm-hmm. You know, it had all these digital, uh, not digital, but analog numbers on little pieces of metal that would flip. And, of course, it wasn't working. And it was like frozen in time, the, the time the power went off and it had the battle. And, and you know, there's dust everywhere. There's, you know, quarter-inch dust everywhere. And it's hot, you know, May and F, uh, Iraq, hot. And, and, and I remember, I said, like, man, what, what is this place? You know, it's like, <laughs> what have I gotten into? And I had a little uh, iPod. Or not uh, a little uh, music player, and I plugged it in my ears because I just kind of wanted to tune something out. And I played it. And I remember the the first song that came up was uh, uh, "Fade to Black" by the Rolling Stones, and I thought huh. how appropriate, <laughs> you know. And so I sat there listening to this, and finally the guy came, and we picked up all our stuff, and we toted it, uh, got on the bus. And uh, went out to the uh, Baghdad Transit Center, but uh, I'll never forget that day. That that was quite an experience. I'll bet. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, um, at some point, someone probably will do a melodramatic articulation of what it's like, and it'll be just like watching it in a movie. Because, right. And the reason I say that is, we all have uh, probably. I wouldn't call them fond, but we have fairly clear recollections of what our first time was. Uh, but trying to articulate that is is not always easy. Um, so anyway, so you're in Baghdad. You're working for, you said KBR, is that right? KBR. Okay. And um, so, so where in, so now where in Baghdad were you stationed, were you, were you stationed to uh, do what you were doing? Well, and, and what you do is you land and you go in, in Baghdad. Then you go to the transit center, and you're there. Uh, they do a, a few more paperwork things on you, and then they send you out to your sites. So I was at Baghdad probably a week, and then I finally went to uh, the G, uh, G sites. Uh, G6, Diwaniya was the first place I went. And uh, that was a... Uh, a, a nice place, but it, the problem with Diwania, um is right up next to the city, and uh, they take a lot of rockets back in those days, so you spend a lot of time in the bunker, and <laughs> that was definitely a different experience. Um, now, the, the bunkers, thing, the bunkers for the, those that are listening that don't know, the bunkers were all outside, correct? They were outside correct. the facility that you worked in. Right. So you would have to stop what you were doing, not put stuff away, stop what you're doing and do your immediate action drill, which was get your stuff on and run outside into the bunkers. Correct. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times they were at night and and, uh, you know, so you this was before they had a lot of the early warning radars and stuff. So one would land, and, and depending on how close it was, it would roll you out of bed. I mean, you'd feel the <laughs> vibration, right? <laughs> hey, guess what? It's in, you know, grab right. your helmet, your vest, and go to the bunker. 
my problem was uh, I'm a very hard sleeper. I only sleep like five hours, but I'm very hard. And a lot of times I would sleep through and they would be beating on my door, waking me up for accountability. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. But but it, it, if anybody's really interested, I, I think the video is still on YouTube about uh, you go to YouTube and you type in a G6 mortar attack. And uh, and this happened after I left. Uh, I went to G3, but about a month after I went to G3, they got hit one day with like 80 uh, rockets and mortars. And, and actually some people died there, but uh, it was a horrific attack. And, and, and that video, I believe, is still on YouTube if anybody wants to listen mm. to it. Now, uh, I need to ask, um, you know, because uh, – Guys and gals that were over there, if they had a significant other, if they didn't, they had parents or, you know, relatives, somebody that they would write home to, call, whatever. Um, when you were working there, were communications an, an easy thing uh, while you were there? Oh, yeah, communications. Uh, I've always been able to have access to a phone or or Internet, send email, uh, whether it be company or, or personal. Um, the only times you couldn't, if there was a blackout, a media blackout, if, if a, uh, a service member died, usually they would black it out until they contacted their family. Uh, for the most part, communication wasn't really a problem. I usually called my wife once a day, if not twice a day. Wow. Yeah, the communications blackout uh, when a service member is killed. Man, I forgot about that until you said yeah. something. Uh, yeah, I rem- <laughs> I do remember those. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, some things you never forget, and most of the rest you, you, you recollect when somebody reminds you of it. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now, uh, not to put the cart before the horse or get ahead of ourselves, but – did you work in Iraq exclusively, or did you work in other countries as, as well? I also worked in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, so before we get to Afghanistan, so in Iraq, now, uh, for the folks that are listening, can you tell them how long you spent uh, working in Iraq? Uh, four years. Uh, I spent four years from uh, May of 2006 to uh, probably July of 2010. Okay. That's that's a fair amount of time right there, um, uh, civilian or otherwise. Um, so now, did you work at the same place? Uh, well, I spent uh, when I came there. Like I said, I spent about a month at G six. Uh, that's Dwinia, and then the rest of the time, the remainder of time was Al Kut. It was uh, G three. Okay. It was a base yeah. right on the Tigris River. Right. Okay. Um. And um, so what your time there in, in Iraq, there in Al-Qut, um, from your perspective, <clears throat> you saw and heard things maybe the same, maybe differently. But uh, you probably had a lot of interesting conversations, overheard a lot of conversations. Um, and you and I talked earlier. Uh, you told me at least one, if not two of the stories. Uh, while you were in Iraq, um, what what story or stories event or events do you recollect to this day 
that uh, still has an impact upon you? Uh, well, there's there there's a very sad one uh, I'll share. It's and sometimes it's, it's difficult to think about it, but but uh, during uh, this time. Uh, at the defect, we had uh, what is called a subcontractor, and try to explain this to your audience. Uh, the the contractor KBR was in charge of the defect, and we had the skeleton staff, the management, and then we hired a subcontractor that had all the cooks and and whatnot, and and they had a, a good amount of people. They had about 200 staff, and they had. And they're the one that actually did the labor of the dining facility. Well, uh, one day uh, they came to me and they asked me if I would go to the front gate because they had a man carrying their money uh, to give them like advance pay, all their subcontractors. You know, they had 200 and each of them got about $200. So 200 times 200. And it was probably more for the management. So this guy in a war zone that we were going to meet at the gate, he was carrying a very large sum of money. And uh, and I had to go because I was the expat, and they were only allowed expats to do certain times. And uh, you, I know your background in security, you know what a, a going to the front gate can be. At, a, at an army base in a war zone. It can be very crazy and chaotic. So I grab my helmet, my body armor, and we drive to the front gate. And our coot, uh, the base there, if anybody's been there, it's it's a big airfield. And it's the perimeter is 20-something miles. It's, it's a huge base. So from the dining facility to the front gate, you have to drive about three or four miles and we finally get there and and uh and uh it's chaotic because you got people coming in you had shops on base and they all had to be searched vehicles had to be searched and you had people the interpreters who were screening helping screening people now you can imagine the interpreters have their face completely covered because they don't want the locals to know they're working with the military. And it's a lot of, you know, the interpreters are, are, you know, shouting at this guy trying to figure out why he wants to be on base or, 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 you know, what do you have in your truck? The truck gets x-rayed. Why are you coming out of this and that? And in the midst of all this, me sitting there waiting for this guy, uh, this old man shows up and he probably was in his 60s 70s maybe and he was sick he could barely walk and uh, he came to see the doctor on certain days they allowed some six people to come and they would have a doctor and a nurse at a certain area by the gate well he came on the wrong day and uh the interpreter was very rough with them because they have to be. They they got to know why you come on the wrong date because you don't know if there's a bomb in a person or a bomb on a vehicle. You you know you got to do your job. 
but but the poor old guy was just sick. And uh, and in war, these are the crazy things that happen. This guy probably could care less about what was going on or who he supported or who he didn't support. He was just sick and wanted to see a doctor. And the guy was yelling at him and finally grabbed him and he dragged him out away from the gate and the space between the gate area and where the city actually began was probably a, a, a quarter of a mile, maybe a little less. And there's just nothing, maybe some old pieces of concrete and some rubble. And the guy, he just dropped him and he, and he sat leaning against this concrete pole. And I was watching this, and, and, and I don't know if that guy lived or died or mm. what actually happened to him. But, you know, how it affected me was, you know, you see the cost there. You, you see how people really suffer that are caught up in this. And, and, and I think about that guy a lot. I mm. wonder what happened to him. Mm. Now was that um, was that your f- the first um, uh, incident that you experienced uh, along that line, or was that uh, a little bit further down the line? That was probably uh, one of the uh, I would kind of experience that that really uh, let me see the cost. You know what 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 is right. going on? Right. Because a lot of times on a base. You know, you're, you're stuck on a base. You don't go uh, the term outside the wire. You don't go out and see things. You know, you're you're kind of stuck. And and so uh, uh, you don't see too much civilians. But but that was the first time I really saw a civilian like that. Mm. OK, uh, now that prop now that wasn't the only time I'm uh, but that was the one that, that that for whatever reason, it really tugged at what your heartstrings. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and I think most guys have at least one moment where, for whatever reason, uh, they have they have an experience like that. Um, if especially if they do it long enough, or you know, they just happen to be uh, unfortunate or unlucky enough to be in a uh, be somewhere when something like that happens. Um, you know, so on a percentage basis, it's probably a low number, low percentage, but it's probably a, a relatively high number of guys and gals that have experienced something like that. Uh, but for, you know, and and it, for the folks that are listening, it's not like you were completely unprepared because you had been in the military, yeah. um, you know, and you weren't exactly a young whippersnapper at the time, but still it, it caught you off guard. So, um, OK, so now what, you're working the DFAC uh, as for folks that are listening that don't know, dining facility. Uh, we used to call it uh, mess hall, chow hall. Uh, some some people right. still do. Um, but, uh, you know, and people come in there and uh, sometimes, they, you know, if if they open early enough, uh, people will come in early and they'll stick around sometimes long after the meal just to socialize. So, so the defects were not always just a place to eat. I mean, because sometimes I'd walk in there some of them were bigger than others, but, you know, you could tell that they were just clearly socializing, maybe snacking, mostly just right. drinking some beverage. And uh, and some of them, uh, you know, there were uh, TVs or monitors with with news or movies and stuff like that. 
Um, so there were also a, there was also a, a social function or social feature to to a lot of those places. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Uh, it, you know, it's it's a great morale. I say morale that could go either way. If your defect is good or if your defect is bad, you know, uh, because you face it, you're you're stuck on a camp. There's not a lot to do. Uh, the MWR the, or the gym or wherever you want to go. It only has limited things. Uh, food is a pretty basic thing. And, and if, if it's great, it, it really lifts the guys up. And uh, one of the biggest things we did was, you know, the holidays. I'm sure you remember the holidays. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd go all out, you know, carving stations, steamship round, ham, turkey, decorations, ice carvings, you know, uh, vegetable carvings. and uh, But the thing tried to do even on a daily basis was come up with uh, different kind of sandwiches you know a special sandwich mm-hmm. uh, when I worked at Camp Brown uh, as a special forces camp on there in Kandahar I would come up with different sandwiches and uh, one they always liked was uh, I called it wish your mama made it <laughs> <laughs> you know soldiers always talk about their bobbins okay <laughs> It, 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 it's just something like that to make them feel good. I would take, you know, Texas toast, toasted, grilled, uh, grilled beef, sliced thin, bacon, Swiss cheese, caramelized onions, and a special sauce. Wow. And man, you know, you, you, you got something that you're, that's not on the 21 day menu. You got <laughs> something they can enjoy, right. you know, and it's little things like that, mm. that, that kind of make their day. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that 100%. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be able to walk into some places. Uh, DFACs were what we call 24-7, yeah. uh, you know, and it was mostly snack finger food kind of stuff, if you will, um, you know, where you could, you know, pour, you know, get a cup of soda or coffee. Um, others were, you know, just three meals a day at prescribed times. Uh, but, yeah, no, the the – the, the social feature of people gathering around at uh, for, for 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 talks and food um, that's kind of like it's not just an American staple it seems to be um, it seems to be indelible in in cultures and societies around the world and, well, uh, uh, yeah food food unites people I yep. mean uh, it, it's a time you come and eat and urge and, and kind of forget about what's going on around you yep and that's the atmosphere that i tried to create you know with music tv or whatever good food you mm. know we we entertain with food right so now you were at the supervisory or management level is that correct that's correct okay so uh, supervising managing uh diverse cultures uh in in a environment such as it was uh how does that st- how did that differ from, say, um, take your, you know, whatever restaurant you want here in America? Oh, it's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, man, you can't compare it. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not day first, you know, you, you got to get over the language barrier. I mean, uh, most of them are supposed to speak English or they sign a paper saying, you know, they can, but. Uh, when they get there, it, you still there's a learning curve, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that would always be interesting 
and uh, with different cultures too. Uh, like the story I I shared with you earlier, if I'd like to share that about the cake. Uh, you know, that was a uh, when I had a, the Salvadoran generals. You know, at one camp uh, they had a bunch of okay, I had a bunch of troops from El Salvador, and they were very big into you know celebrating the Catholic religion. And I had uh, the general was coming during that time, so they wanted me to make a cake with uh, Jesus standing on the world for one of their uh, celebrations that the general would be there. So I told my baker and showed him a picture of what he wanted. He made his fine. He was from India. He's Hindu. And so they made the cake, and they're all happy. The general shows up, and they're all taking pictures around the cake, shaking hands. And then the baker comes to me and says, hey, boss, there's a problem with the cake. And I said, don't tell me there's a problem with the cake. Not now. He said, yes, there's a problem. And he points to Jesus on the cake and says, "Uh, Osama doesn't have an (laughs) AK-47. So... (laughs) So to him, he, you know, he, he wasn't a Christian. He, you know, he, he probably never seen a picture of Jesus, but he saw this picture of a bearded man in a robe on the world. So, uh, you know, he just assumed that. Uh, and, 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 and so trying to communicate across cultures and languages, it, you know, it can be funny at times, it can be difficult at times, but, you know, it's, it's always a challenge. Right. Always a challenge. Yeah, no, it, um, it is. It's it's considerably easier on those occasions when you um, are working with people from other countries that, for various reasons, have a much uh, firmer grasp on your culture, your language, um, and they're, uh, you know, the term that comes to mind, they're more cultured, um, but probably a better term would be they're just a little bit more relaxed and not so put off or offended by things because uh, their personality, their experiences, they've, you know, it, they realize that just as you and I realize ours is not the center of the universe, they realize theirs is not the center of the universe either. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it takes it does. It, it takes it takes a lot. Um but that's that's also part of the experience is learning and realizing the eye opening, the the mind yes. opening of these things. Um, so uh, so you guys did a lot of that. As I recollect, there was a, for lack of a better term, a celebratory meal at most, if not all of the major holidays that the U.S. celebrates. Yes, at- we, we always did the big meals. And then uh, every month we'd have like a promotion cake or a birthday cake. Uh, and then uh, when you have coalition troops, they have holidays. So we would uh, mm. try to do something for them as well. So you know, I, do, I do recollect that. Yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it. Yep. And then you had all the uh, Army birthday, Navy birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had holidays all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah, and you guys were busy. I mean, uh, the, the the dining facilities, particularly those that were, quote, unquote, 
I mean, there was probably always somebody there working, doing something, right? There, there was. And, and you know, for uh, the dining staff, I mean, we were 24-7, you know, uh, three meals a day. If you had midnight child, four meals a day. So our break, you know, was you mainly you get a day off if you're sick <laughs> or, mm. you know, you right. or uh, you, you get a day off. Uh, when you go on vacation, but, mm. but for the most part, our work was very steady, 12, 13 hours a day. Mm. Man, I forgot about that uh, midnight chow. Um, and to, I think we, it was uh, uh, because of, I think the term they used was opposite shift. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the people that work night shift, um, that would be their lunch. Uh, right. Um, yeah. Oh man, I kind of had forgot. Okay. Uh so now you, so you and the people that work for KBR and and the people that work for the other companies uh, that provided these services. Now you folks lived in facilities um, there on the bases, the camps and whatnot uh, that were provided by um, by Uncle Sam, or was were there other entities involved that were supplying these accommodations? Well, yeah, they, I mean it was all under the guidance of the military, but uh, most big companies, you know, KBR and other big companies, they have their own uh, LSA, which stands for Living Support Area, uh, and and that's where you live, you know. And even the smaller companies had uh, their living areas, and these were usually either, uh, you know, choose uh, containerized units. I know you, you, me and you are used to acronyms, so a lot of people aren't. But uh, basically, uh, uh, shipping size containers, uh, and these were either, depending if you were a manager, you usually got one by yourself. Sometimes they'd have one person in it, or two, or three, or they were uh, tents that had been foamed, or tents that had been uh, propped up with plywood. Mm. Uh, but they are pretty primitive. Uh, they had central heat and air, but it always wasn't the best. And your hmm. generators weren't always the best, hmm. but uh, you, you you may do with it. Right. Um, or the, the foam tents and the plywood. I, <laughs> I wouldn't say I forgot about that stuff, but <laughs> thanks for reminding me, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so, yeah. And sometimes, um, especially on the bigger bases, uh, some of these LSAs that you referenced some of them seem like small townships uh, oh, as you're definitely. driving through there. It's like, uh, and and some of the bigger ones had a, had a number of them. Yeah, they. Some of the bigger ones had like, uh, well, you like Camp Liberty in in uh, Iraq. You know, you you had a, a PX that was almost the size of Walmart. Uh, oh yeah, yeah I, I remember, remember that. And you had that whole shop area with local shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Pizza Hut, Burger King, you know, Taco Bell, Subway. And mm. and it was always a treat when you had to go to Baghdad from a smaller camp. Hey, man, bring me this from the PX. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> huh. Now, um so uh, you, when you moved, now you still worked for KBR when you went to Afghanistan, correct? 
No, I, I had changed companies by then. Okay. So can can you describe to folks, tell them so uh, how that came to an end in Iraq and uh, uh, how, how your venture in Afghanistan began? Okay. Uh, back in the summer of uh, 2010, I got a... Uh, I got a hernia, so uh, I had to go home and get it operated on. So when I went home and got it operating, back in 2010, they were starting to de-scope. Um, for those who don't know, it means the troops were leaving, starting to leave um, Iraq. So my job basically, they, they know was no longer needed. So I just stayed at home after they did the surgery. I worked at home for about eight months, and then I said, man, I got to get back to doing what I do best, contracting. Mm. So, so I, you know, I, I looking around, called around, and and uh, I got hired on with another company in, uh, in uh, Afghanistan. Um, and Afghanistan was, was a little different. Um, when I went to Afghanistan, uh, the first thing you kind of noticed was uh, Afghanistan never really got built up like Iraq. Iraq had a uh, highways. Iraq had an infrastructure. It was more modernized before the war. I mean, a lot of it got destroyed during the war, but you still had roads you could get around. Uh, biggest difference in Afghanistan you really didn't have roads you could get around. You had one highway that circled the country, but for the most part, things had to be flown. And and uh, a lot of people don't realize that, but that's a big difference between the two countries when it comes to logistics. Uh, but anyway, I, I landed in Kandahar. Again, they're in process me. And then I uh, spent there about two, three weeks, and then went to a place called Al-Khut. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry, Shindan. Uh, Shindan was in the western province of Afghanistan. Um, and what's amazing is when I was in Iraq, I was maybe uh, close to the Iranian border. And then when I went to Afghanistan, I was close to the Iranian border on the other side. Mm. So that was kind of where Shindad uh, <laughs> was a big air base. It was uh, it was built up by the Russians back in the 60s when when they were helping them. And it had a lot of old Russian towers. It had a lot of old Russian aircraft that were shot up. But it was a nice air base, very big, very open. Uh, so that was a, uh, a nice place to be. Uh, mm. Now, were the facilities and accommodations there were they were they different, similar, or the same? Uh, the only difference in the accommodations was in uh, <clears throat> Iraq. I had a, what was called a wet shoe. I had a bathroom in my uh, container, whereas in uh, Afghanistan I didn't. That hmm. was the only big difference. Huh. Okay. So now uh, cooks uh, and, and and other food service staff there. Um, some of them 
you know, wore something similar to what we would traditionally see at a hotel in terms of, of uniform and others were pretty down, you know, like you would see just walking downtown. Um, I mean, was what was the rhyme or reason to or behind all that? What what controlled or dictated that? Well, it, it, it was a company. Uh, the two big contractors I worked for uh, provided uniforms. Even uh, when times when I had a subcontractor, they provided uniforms. Mm. Uh, now you go to some of the smaller contractors, they may not get them in for logistic reasons or whatever reasons. Uh, and, and may you just have to wear their clothes, street clothes, until their uniforms do come in. Mm. So, it, and you know, logistics is not always your friend over there. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not even sure I'd call it a friend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, you can get a dust storm for several days or in a case where the roads go black, no movement on the roads, uh, no movement on air. And uh, I mean, there's times in the defect I was down to, you know, a couple of days of paper goods, paper plates, you know, huh. it, it's just crazy. Wow. Uh, no, I, 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 I won't go into it, but I do recollect um, a few or more times when, uh, yeah, when we caught wind of that second, third, fourth hand, when we're going like, why is there nothing in here? I mean, there was, but, you know, yeah. comparatively, it's like, <laughs> and we're thinking, oh, man, we might have to go go, go eat rations. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's always the, uh, you know, once a week you get your rations in. Uh, like your, your, we call FFV, fresh fruit and vegetables. Now, if your lettuce, you cut it open, a lot of times the lettuce you cut it open, it'd be rusty, you know, it'd be a brown spot. So you clean it up so you mm. maybe only get half your lettuce. Mm. Or some of it may not be good at all. Huh. So you're not getting another shipment for a week. So maybe, you know, it's getting down to delivery time when all you see on the salad bar is, you know, pickled jalapenos, <laughs> you know, your canned stuff, you know, it, it, it was always a challenge to make it last, you know. Right. So logistically, you got to really plan ahead, don't you? You do. You really wow. do. So in, in that setting and that environment. Uh, this may seem like a uh, an obvious question, but would you rather have too much or not enough? Uh, you know, that's a double-edged sword. It, <laughs> if you have too much, I mean, you can always cook it and serve it. You may not be able to eat it all and end up, you know, discard. Uh, I would rather have, let me, I'd rather have too much dry and frozen. Okay. Not too much fresh. <laughs> All right. I can store dry, dry and frozen. All right. Uh, but but there there are times when uh, you know it's it, it having too much too. You got to look where to store it. That I've been a right. you know your your reefer unit or what we call is is like the trucks you see on the highway. They have the big refrigerated mm -hmm. trailer. That's what we call reefers. And you remember they were just down on the ground. And that's your freezer. Well, when the, those go down and it's 120 outside, you better hope you got a good repairman. <laughs> it, it's it it can keep you jumping. Yeah, the HVAC guys were kind of priceless out there, weren't they? 
They were. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so uh, now the locals, as I recollect, and, and tell me what if you had similar um, experiences, they uh, and not even just the locals. I mean, a lot of the nationalities from around the country, the world uh, for, you know, I hate to use the term excess, but when there was extras, leftovers, um, they would ask, why are you guys throwing it away? Why don't you give it to us? Why don't you let us take it? Um, did you guys have a policy on that? Uh, how did you guys do those sorts of things? Uh, no, uh, you know, simple, you know, food management is you, you cook what you need progressively, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, there are times when, for whatever reason, the guys went on mission, didn't show up, and you're stuck with some food. If you can save it, fine. If not, you throw it out. And the reason you throw it out is you don't want to be liable if somebody gets sick, you know, mm. or, or whatever. Okay. You know, there's a liability there. Okay. It, it, same thing in the States, it, it, people over there, the hey, this food made me sick. No, well, sorry. You, you dug it out of the trash. You know, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know there, there, there's a reason you don't do that. Okay. Uh, but but if all possible, you, you cook what you need. Mm. And, uh, you try to save what, what you don't use or, or discard it. Okay. Well, that kind of that kind of uh, clears up that one because I, I, I do – I was recollecting there were times when it was like – wow, things are slowing down. Where's the food? And then, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes later, it's like, oh, okay. You know, they come out the whole, you know, big new batch of it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, sometimes we would come in in waves. Right. Um, and maybe bigger or more waves than you were anticipating. Right. <laughs> you know, especially if people were coming in from other places, uh, w- which happened a lot, especially in the, uh, you know, as time went on, there was, I would say that there was less movement, but there were fewer people. And so um, those those probably weren't as, um, you know, the, the back and forth, you know, uh, having to cook more batches. And now what are we going to do that we cook another batch and we don't need it? That probably didn't happen as much later, right? No, you, you, you know, for you, you kind of see a pattern uh, and you kind of know when, when a rip is coming in, a unit's leaving and another one's coming in. And there's like a two-week overlap where they're mm. there together, and so they can hand things off. Mm. And you, you generally know when that's going to happen, so that okay. that helped a lot. Mm. Now, did did, did you, um, in your industry there, did you experience uh, not culture clashes, but did you experience incidences and problems? Uh, with other cultures, uh, other people from around the world uh, for any variety of reasons that were beyond just, you know, normal haggling and stuff. I mean, did you guys have issues? Was that a problem? Um, I don't, there was, like, the, the biggest problem we had, it wasn't really a problem because you finally get to work through these things, uh, was like, when when other cultures or people from other nations wanted certain holiday food mm. and and you tried it your best to accommodate that but you know you know you don't have uh whatever they want it's just not in the catalog you know right. 
So, so you, you would try your best to accommodate them or even go as far as maybe trying to find something online. But you, you tried whatever you could to, to appease them because they're your coalition troops. So are we talking like halal kosher kind of stuff? Is that what we're talking about? Right. Or, or like people from, let's say for example, Romania, they have a certain type of fish they want at Christmas. Mm. Well, I can't get that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, know, that's just not in my catalog. Man, you know, so, you know that uh, that reminds me. Fish became one of my favorite eats over yeah. there. Um, halibut and cod. Um, yeah. and some people are probably going yuck and throwing up, but I really, I mean, I'm going to say some of these. And as time went on, I I, I I came to more of them. But some of these defects really had it. It was like if you look beyond the hard structure and the setting. Some of them were actually set up and looked pretty modern and really nice, but they more to the point. I was amazed at at the at how well these foods were prepared and served. Some of them, and it, I mean, some of the most basic foods. I just it's like maybe just because I was too far and too long from home. I don't know, but yeah, you know, uh, I would say I. I probably had the best people I ever had in food service uh, mm. there, mm. you know, because uh, you learn how to make do with what you have and you learn to be creative with you. You right. know, and, and people don't realize uh, when you're in a war zone and you just can't go to Walmart or, you know, Tom Thumb or the local grocery store, you you got to be creative and right. and you have to come up, think outside of the box as what my boss used to always say and, mm-hmm. and, and, and think of how you can make something different with the same food. That was something different the other day. So, you know, it, and uh, my hats off to a lot of the staff I had, we, we pulled it off. Mm. Right. So do you think that you're not, okay. So, you spent a total of how many years uh, to this point working overseas? Uh, probably close to twelve. Wow. Okay. So after, so you did what? Four years in Iraq. Four years in Iraq, and then I did uh, two different times in Afghanistan, almost four four years each. Wow. <laughs> that's that's a long time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, do you think that your time over there? In either both countries, the experiences that you had over there, uh, do you think it it has served you since you've been home? Uh, And if so, uh, in what ways, how? Well, I think it's it's made me appreciate life Uh, and, and to appreciate what you have, because you see so much of, of people who have nothing and even the culture of people you work with, how they can be happy with less. Um, and, and you, I don't know how to say, you value your life more or the lives of others more. It, it's, uh, 
it's like looking at, you know, what, what you think is beautiful. You lived in this town your whole life and you think it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden you go and you, your eyes are open to a whole different world. You know, you see other things that are beautiful. You see other things that are sad. Um, and so it, it, it opens you up a lot mm. to see things from a different perspective. Um, you know, I, maybe this is a bad comparison, but, you know, I think war like a cheap whiskey. It's going to bring out what's ever in you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you have bad things in you, it's going to bring you out. If you have good things in it, it's going to bring that out. Wow. You know, you see the best in human nature. I've seen guys go the extra mile. I've seen, you know, medics try to save people. You know, and, and then you see horrible things, too. But, you know, uh, I can say it was, it's been a great experience for me. Hmm. And uh, how did your wife, what does she think of it now? Uh, she's kind of ready for me to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of which, that's a perfect segue into, uh, you know, so you haven't been contracting in, in a in a short time. Um, and when we were talking earlier, you were, I think you said something about you were considering going back over, but that aside, um, what is your life like now? How, how have things changed? And, uh, w- you know, what are your plans for the future? Well, my, my plans right now is, you know, uh, you know, I've been doing some things around the house. Just, uh, I want to get back to work, whether it's stateside or back overseas. Uh, you know, this COVID thing has really, you know, it's, it's changed the landscape, you know, all over the world, really. So we, uh, we're kind of yet to find our way through that, uh, you know, on an individual level and as a level as a people, you know, uh, trying to find the light at the end of the tunnel here all for that. Mm. So we'll get through that hump and, uh, find some work and uh, see how things go from there. <laughs> okay. So, and you may have already touched upon it. If you did, maybe you can expound upon it or maybe you've said it. Um, but is there, is there a takeaway or something you would like to leave people that are listening with uh, based on your experiences? Experiences either overseas and or life. Uh, I think, uh, uh, I guess I have time to share a story. Uh, and uh, what this story taught me is you never know what's going to happen in life. And I remember back, uh, what year did the Russians invade Georgia? 2008? Hmm. Uh, the, some, somewhere uh, in that time frame. Is this trivia night? <laughs> no, 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 no. I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember the exact year. Yeah. 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 But anyway, at that time frame, I had Georgian troops I was feeding in in Al-Qut. And and they came in the defect, and they were seeing their country being invaded. Now, imagine you're you're a coalition troop. You're helping a member of a coalition fight a war in another country, and you look up at the TV and see your country invaded. Hmm. That that had to be a mind blowing experience for them, and and I remember they they all left within a week they were out of there, hmm. 
and you know, fast forward to five years later, I'm at Camp Leatherneck in a defect, walking the floor, talking to customers, and lo and behold, I see some of the same Georgians I fed back in 2008 or seven, whenever it was. Mm. And I thought, you know, it's such a small world. Isn't it? And you never know what's going to happen or what course your life will take. Uh, and and they were okay. And, and like, because I'd never know what happened to them. Did they live? Did they die? Or And... And recalling that experience, you know, two separate locations, two separate wars, but you meet up with the same people. You know, life is so vast, you never know where it'll take you or what Mm -hmm. you'll experience. So that's, uh, I guess all I can say is, you know, live your life to its fullest. See Mm -hmm. where it takes you. Right. Wow. Uh, So... uh, if, if for those that are out there, uh, I, real quick, if we can, I, I don't think we quite got there earlier in the opening that uh, um, do you have um, anything to offer if people want to try their hand at contracting? Do you know places or companies where people can go to find out more information or what they should do? What's their first step? What should they do? Oh, well, the first step is like, uh, you know, there's there's major contracting companies. Um, all you got to do is do a search on the Internet, you know, overseas jobs, uh, contracting jobs in war zones. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and these, these companies will pop up and then you go to a job search. Uh, they always need like anything basic life support, like power gen mechanics. Uh you know, food service, laundry, hmm. uh, plumbing. Uh, now you think of it, uh, you see it too, there, there'll be a patch of desert out in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you know, four weeks later, there's a base there. Well, they, <laughs> they, they, they dug a well, they took a bulldozer and they, they built a wall, you know, put sand hmm. up, filled HESCO bags. <clears throat> Uh, put a defect in, drilled water, got water, got water, electricity, a defect. You know, that's all you need. And all <laughs> of a sudden, tents and and shoes come, and there you got. Right. So in a matter of a month, you have a a tiny city or a small town. Right. You know, uh, I've been to some of these bigger bases. Well, we talked earlier, but Kandahar at one time had almost forty thousand people. Mm. You know, in a boardwalk. I don't know if you ever made it to the boardwalk, but it was wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've known a number of people that have been to Kandahar. Um, I was headed there a few times, never quite made it. But uh, anyway. Um, hmm. Well, uh, Robert, uh, you know, for the folks that are listening, I, I want to thank my, my special guest today, Robert Fox. Uh, uh, thank you for um, being a part of the show and uh, reaching out and uh offering to do this you know it, like i said before it's it's a refreshing change of pace it's an interesting different uh perspective and take on things and i'm sure there's an you know we've talked uh before this and uh you know uh don't go away when when we're done here um i want to 
talk just for a few more minutes, but there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, uh, 12 years you know, right. there, there's a lot, a lot of, of ground to cover. So, um, you know, uh, I'd like to do this again with you someday. Um, okay, sure. maybe a few more times even, um, so for the folks that are listening, uh, I want to say thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, remember to be careful what you wish for folks. Stay frosty. And until next time, keep it real.